Unsilencing Stories is a podcast that reflects the voices of people in small towns and communities in Canada who have lost loved ones to the toxic drug supply crisis. Since 2016, more than 30,000 people have died from fatal overdoses in Canada, and that number continues to climb. The risk in smaller towns and communities is much higher than in urban areas because of a lack of harm reduction services and stigma against substance use and people who use drugs. This podcast is part of a community-based participatory research project facilitated by Erin Goodman, PhD, a faculty member at Kwatlen Polytechnic University in Surrey, BC, along with students Jenna Keeble and Ashley Pokernich. The aim was to assist collaborators in publicly memorializing their loved ones and expressing grief, as well as challenging silences imposed by dominant media organizations and stigma from society against substance use and people who use drugs. We hope these nuanced stories make a clear why the government needs to be doing more to prevent further deaths. In this episode, you'll hear Rhonda Watt interviewing Tamarel Richard in Lloydminster, Alberta, about her brother Tyrone Hickey, who experienced a fatal opioid overdose at age 29 in 2018. Tamarel, my last name is Richard. And where do you live? I live in Lloydminster on the Alberta side of the border. And is there a person that you would like to speak about that died from an overdose? Yes, my brother. His name was Tyrone Hickey. Tyrone, what a neat name. You all have interesting names, actually. We all, we all have T names. Yeah, I'm Tamarell, my brother was Tyrone, and my sister is Taryn. Oh, neat. Very neat. What is your most vivid memory of of him? I have so many memories of him. Um, <laughs> my favorite one ever, though. We were kids, and we were camping in BC, and we were playing at the park, and our parents were at the campsite, like not very far from where the park was at the campground. And all of a sudden... Tie, we were on the swings and he was like ow my finger and he looked at his finger and didn't see anything and then he's like ow my leg and so he pulled his shorts back to look down and he had just had his swimming shorts on and a wasp flew out it had stung him and he and he ripped his shorts off and he was screaming at the top of his lungs get my dad get my dad it stung me and I just thought it was hilarious. I couldn't. I couldn't even move. I was just standing there laughing at him because it was so funny. Like, just he was running around the park naked. It was. It was hilarious. Oh wow! <laughs> oh, that's wild. Oh, what was your relationship like with him? Him and I were. Two years apart, I'm two years older, so we were super... When we were children, we weren't as close. He liked to beat me up, and my dad was always like, Oh, she'll be bigger than you someday, and you'll get it back. And But uh, we always fought like siblings fight, I guess. But as we got older, we were super close. He... Like, I moved out and moved to Lloyd, and right after he graduated, he moved to Lloyd and kind of lived with some friends and then decided he wanted to live with me. So him and I lived together in that apartment for years. And then when my husband and I ended up buying this house, he moved with us and lived in our basement for 
another few years. Like, we were super, super close. How would you describe his personality? He... He was very... He liked to be like he was, like, tough or whatever, but inside he was, like, the softest, like, sensitive. He'd cry about everything, and he was... Yeah, he like he didn't like to show people that, but like to me, he was just a big soft teddy bear. What were his hopes and dreams for the future? Um, so when he passed away, just before he passed away, he um was getting his life together. He was sober for a while, probably a year and a bit. He had um registered to go back to school to start a new trade because originally he was in like a pipe fitting trade but he decided he didn't want to do that anymore so he was registered to start school in a month at the college in Vermilion to do electrical so he was trying to become an electrician oh wow yeah he was making some big changes that's why what has been the hardest thing about losing him? I don't know. It's all hard. <laughs> it really is. The hardest thing is just not having him here to tell things to and, you know, share my joy in things, share my sadness. Um, I have a six, well, he'll be six in May, my son. He was... Uh, he was almost two when Ty passed away so the hardest for me is watching him grow up without his uncle yeah that's the worst I think because my brother was big into sports he was super athletic he yeah hockey sports they were like his thing and he told me the Christmas before he passed away, he's like, oh, don't worry, I'll be there. I'll teach Lawson how to skate. And so all the things he's missing with him is the hardest. Are you comfortable or can you talk about his death and how did he die? Yes. So he passed away in, it was January, um, in a halfway house in Edmonton because he was in prison and had been released to the halfway house in October and he only had like a month left there and then he was going to be able to come home so I wasn't up there but the day before my mom and sister were with him they went shopping and he bought groceries and he got his hair cut and you know, did all the normal things, and then that night, after supper, he said to mom, okay, like, I think I just want to go back, I'm tired, so he went back to the halfway house, he said to mom, I'll see you tomorrow, uh, that weekend he was alone at the halfway house, his roommates were gone on a weekend pass, so the next day, my mom tried to call him early in the morning, like 10, didn't get an answer, and she thought, well, that was weird. So she tried again, still no answer. Around noon, she hadn't heard from him, so she called the halfway house, and they were like, oh, well, we'll go check on him. We'll get him to call you. It was like 
four o'clock that afternoon, she called me and she's like, I still haven't heard from him. I don't know what happened to him. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure he's fine. I'm like, maybe he's out somewhere or something. Like, actually, I said, maybe he got in trouble and went back to jail. I'm like, it's really weird. I don't know why they haven't called. And then I think it was like an hour or two later, the police showed up at her house in Marwayne and she wasn't home. So they told my stepdad and then my stepdad had to call her and tell her that they that he had passed away oh and in there she had actually called the halfway house back at four and they got a different person and they were like oh I just got here I'm not sure what's going on so nobody would tell her like what had happened and then then the police notified her that he was gone and then after that she found out that when she called at like 10 or whatever they must have went to check on him found him found him gone on the couch um the coroner she talked to after showed up at noon she said so they knew like at noon and i don't know why why it took so long for them to tell her or let her know but the coroner said by the time she got there at noon he had probably been gone for four to six hours and so like I'm still I don't know it still makes me angry because the halfway house they're supposed to check on the residents every hour clearly somebody didn't check on him she did find out later like he had drugs in his room they had found drugs by him the police weren't sure what they were they thought possibly like crystal meth the coroner said it kind of looked like heroin when they did the um toxicology reports and they came back that it was fentanyl mixed with a some kind of veterinary tranquilizer so i don't know if he thought he was getting heroin or what he thought but it was definitely fentanyl and it killed him um i guess the coroner did tell mom that they tried, they must have tried to use um, naloxone on him because there was a kit there in the room by him, but he was already gone by the time that they even found him. I do know there was one staff member that Ty had said when she's on shift, she never checks them. So I feel like he picked that night because he was alone and he knew that lady was on. I don't, I don't think in my mind that he did it intentionally to kill himself but I mean once you've been sober for a while and you relapse yeah you don't have the tolerance you used to I teach that a lot to these clients you don't have the tolerance anymore I'm so sorry well thank you how, how do you think he would want to be remembered I think he would want to be remembered as the guy he was before addiction that he would want to be remembered as like that guy was fun happy like had lots of friends played hockey he gave the best biggest bear hugs like the tightest hugs all his friends are like he was the best hugger um he had a smile that would light up his whole face um yeah most people just they loved him when they saw him 
Thank you for sharing that. Beautiful. You're welcome. Yeah, Ty's, Ty's smile was like the highlight. Everybody remembers his smile and his laugh. Because he had this deep voice and like this booming laugh. It was, yeah. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Unsilencing Stories podcast. To listen to more interviews in the series, please go to www.unsilencingstories.com. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, message us at unsilencingstories at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and please share the project of other people you know.